All right, good morning. Let's get after it. If you have a Bible, we'll go to Acts 17. Acts 17 is where we'll start. If you don't have a Bible, there should be a black card back underneath the seat around you. You're more than welcome to grab one of those and flip with us to the book of Acts. Chapter 17, we'll be there for a couple minutes, and then we'll flip over to Philippians uh, for the rest of the sermon. Thanks for your prayers. I uh, am five teeth uh, lighter right now, so four wisdom teeth. Lost a lot of wisdom, all right? This is bad. I was already on rations, okay? So we'll see. We'll see how the sermon goes if I still have it. But I appreciate the prayers. Everything went well. Uh, it's good to be back. Again, sorry about canceling FSQ 101. Uh, like Wes said, there was a, uh, a death, and so I'll be heading to a funeral this afternoon. We'll reschedule that for February. And what that is, again, is a chance to come grab lunch with some of the leadership at FC Cubed. Uh, we'll go upstairs and have lunch. I'll tell you a little about the history of the church. We'll tell you about how things work in the church, leadership. Even if you've been here for a while and still have questions, you might enjoy uh, coming to this. We'll talk about membership uh, and then have a Q&A if you have any questions for us. We can talk about um, what it looks like to be a part of FCQ. So that will be coming late February, and, and we'll keep reminding you about that. Uh, I think it will be a, a good time. So Acts 17 is where we are. We're starting a new sermon series today called Finding God on Your iPod. Now I've got to say right at the, the, get, the get-go here, right at the outset, I just stole the sermon series, okay? This is not my idea. There's a pastor in... Uh, Missouri, Brian Zahn, who I recommend you go listen to. I love his stuff. Don't always agree with it, but he always makes me think. He always makes me read my scriptures, always challenges me. Um, but he's done this, I think, every August. That's like a thing they do at the church for the past two or three years or so. And so I've, I've listened to him do it and had that idea. And so what I'm doing is just reading his manuscripts. No, I'm joking. We're just, just we'll pick new songs and new material and things like that, okay? But the, the kind of, convert, uh, the kind of uh, idea behind the series, Finding God on Your iPod, is that we're going to put... Um, in conversation, certain pop songs, certain popular songs in our culture with the gospel, with the scriptures, and see how the two might interact, um, what kind of conversation or dialogue uh, might um, result from that. So each week we'll have a new song that we'll grapple with and we'll turn to the scriptures with. Now, I wanted to be in Acts 17 as we started because this practice, um, using culture and using songs that are well-known to communicate the gospel, is actually a pretty old practice. It goes back all the way to Apostle Paul, who wrote a lot of our New Testament. Acts 17, we're in verse 22, we'll read. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, or Mars Hill, it's one of the more famous speeches in the New Testament, said, men of Athens, Athens is a really famous city full of philosophers and poets and prophets, this is where the ideas circulated. Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. It's kind of cool imagery, I think. Maybe that describes some of our experiences as being Christians. Sometimes you're groping, right? I mean, sometimes it's kind of like you're in a dark hallway, and you just know, I need to go this direction. And God set up the right circumstances for you to seek him and find him, that you might feel your way around. Yet actually, Paul says, he's not that much far from each of us. For, and he quotes, and this is kind of the interesting part here, in him we live and move and have our being. Now, any really good Bible readers out there know what part of the Bible this is from? Anybody? It's not, it's not from the Bible. It's actually from a religious text written to Zeus. Have you heard of Zeus? 
the Greek God. Yeah, this is a, a really famous poem back from 600 BC that Paul's quoting here in his Christian sermon. He goes on, okay, so he's got a second chance to quote the Bible. As even some of your own poets have said, for indeed we are his offspring. Now that sounds like something in the Bible. Um, once again, this is Greek poetry. This is, not, this is not a scripture that he's quoting. And in fact, this is Greek poetry written to Zeus. Very famous line actually here, the second one, for we are indeed his offspring. Um, Paul here, as he's talking with kind of the culture, the, the kind of cultural elites in Athens, what he does is he creatively finds a way to use the songs that they were familiar with, the poems. Poetry was all the rage back in the Greco-Roman world. And he picks two of them, two very famous ones, written to Zeus. And he appropriates them. He says, let me take this and show you how this will lead us to Christ, crucified and resurrected. This is what we want to do in our sermon series. We want to take songs that we're familiar with, songs that have, for whatever reason, whether we like them or not, kind of infiltrated the consciousness of our our culture, our nation. I mean, again, whether you like some of the music, whether you don't like some of the music, first period is learned, first semester I'm in school mode. First service, 845 service, is learning all kinds of new songs, okay, with, uh, with the series. Whether you like them, whether you don't like them, um, most of them are going to be very, very popular, which means millions and millions and millions of people, for whatever reason, resonate with them. And I think going through and matching up the scriptures and the gospel and what Jesus has to say with what we're hearing and the questions we're seeing and the doubts and hopes that we're seeing in, in certain songs will help us grow in our faith. I think in two ways. First of all, I think a lot of the things that our songs are asking are questions that we have. A lot of the things that that our songs are hoping for, a lot of the things that our songs are doubting are doubts that we have and hopes that we have. I think we can learn and we can grow. And then secondly, I think uh, if you and I are going to grow in our ability to make disciples, who then make disciples, our mission at FC Cube, our mission as Christians, to go out on mission, to spread the good news, exercises like this, I think, are always helpful. Um, I don't always think the best evangelism is saying, do you want to go to church on Sunday? Or, if you die tonight, do you know where you go? Sometimes the best evangelism is after that song. Like, hey, what do you think about that lyric? Or after that movie or TV show conversation. I think sometimes the more we can increase this kind of Jesus talk among our neighbors and family, perhaps we'll be a little bit more effective in seeing... Um, conversations and relationships intentionally go the way we want to. Karl Barth once said that we should read the Bible in one hand with the newspaper in the other. We should, we should connect the two. I think maybe you could also apply that now in our kind of digital age. Read the Bible in one hand and with your iPod in the other, with your, with your iPhone in the other. So today's song will have a different song every week. I promised first service that we'd have one classic song, okay? So I've gotten out my Billy Joel albums. <laughs> Only the good die young. I'm all in it, all right? Uh, We'll figure out what we'll do for that. Um, But today's song comes from a band called Imagine Dragons. It's a four-piece alternative rock band from Las Vegas, Nevada. Um, Very, very popular band. They have one album, Night Visions, that came out uh, just to kind of run you through how popular they are if you're not familiar with them. Uh, The album peaked at number two on the weekly Billboard 200 chart. It's certified platinum in eight countries. It sold over 1.8 million copies in the United States and was nominated for the Grammy for Best Record of the Year. Uh, as I was told in first service, apparently Mike learned how to Google, okay? <laughs> Figured out a lot of facts. There you go, those are the sources of that joke. Uh, it's a, a very popular band, one favorite artist, uh, favorite rock artist at the American Music Awards uh, 2013. Billboard and MTV both described them as the biggest breakthrough band in 2013. Now the song we'll listen to is called Demons, okay? Um, and so we're all instantly excited about this. Demons by Imagine Dragons. It's the fifth single off of their album, off their debut album. 
It uh, was in the top 10 on the Billboard for about 12 weeks in 2013. Again, a very popular song. Uh, it's charted in a lot of different countries and things of that nature. What we've got is we've got the music video for Demons by Imagine Dragons. So we'll listen to it, and then we'll kind of dive in and explore it. Okay, here we go. Yeah, no music.
Satan thing. I think an often way we use the word demon is kind of diabolical force in our lives. And so you see the kind of, in the music video suggests this, he zooms in on someone's eyes, right? And you see the girl who you think is just enjoying the concert who actually just recently lost her, her parents. And you look in her eyes and, and you find the demons. Or, or the man who you look into his eyes and, and you find out he's not just enjoying a concert, but, but there's some kind of problem. He's emaciated. He might have a disease, using drugs. The boy is being abused by his father. The military man had experienced kind of some horrific things in his past. From my demons hide. The song is this kind of this confession of sorts. It's kind of this um, vulnerable expression of of the darkness of humanity. When the days are cold and the cards all fold, and the saints we see are all made of gold. When there's just statues left of good people. When your dreams all fail, the ones we hail are the worst of all. When the bloods run stale. I don't know if you've ever seen a, a hero fall. If you ever found out that one of your heroes had a demon, oh, that can kind of get you, kind of hit you in the stomach. Even with the ones that we hail. He says, I want to hide the truth. I want to shelter you. But with the beast inside, there's nowhere that we can hide. No matter what we breed, we're made of greed. This is my kingdom come. This is my kingdom come. It's interesting that a song about demons would become so popular. And a song about these kind of hidden struggles with pain and shame and fear and doubt. It makes you wonder if a lot of people have demons. It makes you wonder if, if maybe more people than would admit it have some skeletons in their closet have some things that maybe occasionally still haunt them. Still still mess with their psyche a little bit. The, the song seems to be written to a significant other, to a loved one, and he's trying to kind of push, push that person away. Don't get too close. You don't understand how dark it is inside. You don't understand. I don't want to hurt you. I don't want you to bring, bring this into me. Um, and the song ends with a little bit of hope. Um, the kind of climax of the song is, your eyes, they shine so bright. I want to save that light. But I can't escape this now unless you show me how. And he repeats the chorus. There's this, this aspect of maybe there's someone out there who, who's going to be able to, to rise, to lift me up out of, of the, the demons that plague me, the demons that haunt me. I think this is something that, that most of us can relate to. In fact, I think if we took the time this morning, most of us would probably have interesting stories to tell each other. If we were honest with each other, if we could be vulnerable with each other. Probably have stuff about us that no one would ever suspect, that no one would ever guess, that we're really good at hiding, that we're really good at, at kind of keeping deep down. The problem with this is, is sometimes these demons, these, these um, kind of past pains from maybe something that happened to us or maybe something that we did, the problem is that they can hinder present experiences or future abilities. So, so this person's pushing away a loved one. I'm sure you've probably seen this in real life, somebody who has commitment issues. Don't say my name, okay? <laughs> Who pushes people away, right? You don't, you don't want to get involved. You're going to get hurt here. I think this happens in our relationship with God. In fact, there's religious illusions all throughout the song. He talks about saints. He talks about my kingdom come. No matter what we breed, we're made of greed. This is my kingdom come. This is what it looks like when life is run my way, not God's way. The gospel is that good news, God's kingdom has come. We can be transferred out of our kingdom into God's kingdom. It talks about demons, a lot of religious illusions here. I think we do this with God sometimes. I can't tell you how many people, if I, if I had to diagnose, and I kind of don't like this because it's so like psychotherapy, like, you know, just therapeutic, but I really do think the more I talk and the more I live, I think one of the biggest problems for us as Christians is accepting God's love for us. It's just hard. It's hard to do, and I think, I think some of our demons stand in the way of that. 
I think sometimes we think, you know, we, we've gone too far, or because of that thing that happened to us, that was done to us, there's no way God could love us. There's no way that God could, could forgive us of that. Or, perhaps, there's not this really tragic thing in your past, but you're just kind of embarrassed about your status as a Christian. I don't know if this thought resonates with you. I know most of you in the room have a working knowledge. I know some of you very well. Have you ever had that thought that I'm not as far along as I thought I would be by now in your Christian faith? I'm not as far along as I thought I would be. If you'd have asked me five years ago, I'd probably be a little disappointed in myself. And we think, if I'm disappointed, God's surely disappointed. God's surely disappointed. <laughs> It stops us from, from accepting his love. It stops us from, from receiving his grace. It stops us from going on mission with him. We think surely we're not deserving of being able to do that. Um, and it keeps us stuck. It, it kind of traps us, these demons, these, these cycles of pain. It keeps us in certain addictions and certain bad behaviors. And the gospel offers us transformations. This song, I think, we might call it a, a lyrical confession of the demonic oppression of humanity. It's... it's Kind of something that you might find in, in the Old Testament. It's a kind of prophetic coming to grips, learning to deal with the reality of the diabolical stranglehold over our race. There are these things that plague us. There are these wounds that seem to fester on and on and on and on. It's a, it's a poetic confrontation with the brokenness that haunts us all at one time or another. Some of you, I think, right now, probably, if you were honest, have some of these demons. But I think of it right now. If you don't, Good for you. One day you probably will. Life is messy. Human life is messy. Sometimes there are scars and there are wounds. And we've got to learn how to deal with, with these demons. Now the good news is that scripture is full of horrible people. And it doesn't sound like great news, but the more you think about it, the more it is great news. Because throughout the scriptures, there are all these horrible people with, with demons that I can almost guarantee are bigger than your demons and nastier, and, and smellier, and dirtier than your demons, that God still loves, and blesses, and uses really powerfully. And there's, there's so much encouragement I think we can find from the scriptures. So much, so much instruction about how to handle our, our demons, these, these pains that have turned negative on us. These, again, it, it, could be, it could be a multitude of things, a past memory, something that was done to you, something that you've done. I remember for myself, I've told this story before, quite a while ago, I can very, very clearly remember the first time I ever felt like a sinner, like dirty, like a part of the fallenness of the world. I was about 11 or 12 years old, and there was a group of kids I was friends with who didn't like another group of kids down the street, and I got hit in the head of the hockey stick, and then we ganged up on the kid who hit me and beat him up. And I remember thinking later that night, only fight I've ever won. It was five on one, okay? So, <laughs> since then, I've learned to slap and run, okay? <laughs> Not fight or flight. <laughs> Jab and run. Sprint. That night, I, I real clearly remember, I mean, just looking at my hands and going, wow, I'm a bad person. It wasn't, it wasn't even fair. There was nothing noble about that at all. Just sat on him and punched him. I knew the world was a bad place, but now I'm part of that badness, right? I don't know if you've ever been in that place where you crossed that line that you thought you'd never cross. You, you took that step that you thought you, you would never take. Or that, that thing has happened that you, you've never told someone. These demons, they haunt us. You look into our eyes, that's where they hide. 
Now, Scripture, again, like I said, is, is full of this. Paul himself has some demons, okay? The Apostle Paul, Superman of the Bible, he's got some demons, and he's got some advice for us as we join Imagine Dragons in confessing uh, the, the, the demons that haunt us at times. So Philippians 3, if you'll turn with me. Philippians 3, I want to read on Paul's advice to us. Your eyes, they shine so bright. I want to save that light, but I can't escape it unless you show me how. Verse 12 of chapter 3, Philippians 3, verse 12. Paul says this, Not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Now, the first thing that's happening here is Paul is admitting that he is not at the end of his journey as a Christian. He's not reached spiritual maturity. This is a pretty interesting observation because Paul is, like I said, pretty much Superman, okay? I mean, he is varsity-level Christian. He heals people when, like, handkerchiefs fall off his, his body. They touch it, they're healed. That is, only happens to me every now and then. <laughs> it's more of a regular occurrence for him, okay? I mean, he's, he's up here and he's going, look, I'm not there yet. I haven't, I haven't already obtained this. The this that he's talking about in the passage right before is his resurrection life. The full, eternal life God has come to offer us. That we can start to experience now. Paul seems to be saying the mature Christian response is to say, I'm not finished on my journey. To think that you're done would be a seemingly immature thing to say. He says, I press on. I intentionally move forward to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. That's going to be important, those two plays on words. I want to make it my own because... He's made me his own. Verse 13, here's our advice. Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do. Here's the one thing he does. You can tell he's a pastor because he says, here's the one thing I do, and then he lists off a handful of things, okay? <laughs> Just five more minutes and we'll wrap up. And then 20 minutes later, the sermon's still going. The one thing, the one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. He turns his direction from what's behind him to what's in front of him. He changes his focus. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Verse 17, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. Now, we've got to be very careful with this advice from Paul. He says, forget what's behind and press on to what is ahead of us. The tendency we have when we read scripture is to, to turn things into cute self-help cliches, okay? So to just say, you know, forget it. Act like it never happened. Look ahead of you. That's not exactly what Paul is saying here. Paul is, is giving this advice in a theological context, in the context of what Christ has done for him and what he's experienced from Christ. He says, I've been purchased. I've been grabbed. Christ Jesus has made me his own. It's Paul's experience of the cross, his experience of the resurrection, his experience of following in those faithful footsteps after Christ that puts him in a posture, that puts him in a position to be able to forget what's behind him. Now, Paul has a lot behind him. Just right before this pastor started reading, he lists off some of his pedigrees, some of his credentials, his resume, if you will. It's pretty impressive. He, he, he kind of checked off all the boxes. I think Paul's definitely saying here, 
I don't focus on all that great stuff I did in the past. In fact, he says, uh, in a couple verses earlier, he says, I consider that all trash, garbage, sewer. It's a four-letter word in Greek. It really is. It's offensive. You wouldn't say it in, in public. Paul says, that's how, much I, that's how much I count this this good stuff in my past. Can we say that nostalgia is probably a great enemy of Christianity, uh, Christianity of, your, of your walk with Christ? And what I mean by that is dwelling in the glory days. Three years ago when you had a really strong relationship with Christ. Sometimes we can focus on the good and we have to forget what's behind and, and turn around. So what's going on now? What's, what's going on? What's, what's heading my way? We can't live off of, of nostalgia. Um, Paul also, though, and sometimes we forget this, he has a lot of bad stuff in his past. Sometimes we overlook Paul's lifestyle transformation, his actual day-to-day lifestyle that changes when he becomes a Christian. It's not just beliefs that change about Paul. Remember, Paul is a murderer. Paul persecuted the church for a living. He killed Christians, people who believed in Jesus, who were baptized, who had gone into the water and come out of the water. He would find them and he would kill them. He'd make them dead. Men, women, and children. It was his profession. That's what he was devoted to. He was a murderer. He was a religious terrorist. The first words that Jesus ever says to Paul on the road to Damascus Remember this? He says, why are you persecuting me? And Paul goes, I don't know who you are, but I haven't been doing anything to you. And he goes, you're touching my body. You're killing my, you're killing my people. I've got to think those words are seared into Paul's mind. That he wakes up at night sometimes and thinks about the faces of those kids right before they died. Thinks about the blood on his hands. If we know anything about Paul, we know he cared a whole lot for his churches, for the church, for the unity of the church. This is this kind of overarching drive, this theme throughout his whole ministry, that, that Christians should always eat together. There should be no divisions. There should be no problems in the church. And he's got to live with the past, with demons, where he realizes, I killed a whole lot of my brothers and sisters in Christ. There's no... There's no repenting of murder in the sense that you can, like, fix it. Does that make sense? If I break someone's glasses, I can buy them new glasses. You don't go back from that. Paul, again, doesn't just completely change and then it's perfect. Uh, we know Paul has this big blow up with John Mark and he's not proud of later. And on this missionary journey, he, he kind of um, they don't get along in a way that he advises other Christians to get along in. Paul says in a letter, um, of a kind of intense personal letter, that he has a thorn in his flesh. We don't know what it is. We do know that it was very, very painful for Paul. Severely hindered his life and ministry and relationship to God. He thought it was associated with the satanic and the demonic. And he asked repeatedly for God to take it away. Not to let me bear it. Not to let, me ha- let this happen to me. Let me endure it. He said, God, you have to take this away if you want me to do this. Some kind of thorn in the flesh. Paul's life, even after his conversion, is not perfect. He's not already obtained this. But even Paul, with these, with these demons in his past, is able to, to leave it behind and press on toward what's coming his way. Even Paul, with, with this past, is able to say, you, you should still imitate me. And we should still walk this journey together. Now, the Bible is a kind of who's who list of who 
Okay, I mean, it's these, it's these ridiculous characters who God works through. Have you ever read the Bible? Again, sometimes we overlook this, how awful of the people that are in the Bible, that are the heroes. Like, they're, they're so much really awful people. Really awful people. Like, horrible, horrible, horrible people. You would not like them. <laughs> you would not invite them over to dinner. <coughs> You'd sneer at them when they came to the church. Moses was a murderer. With his bare hands, which is kind of cool. I mean, it's just manly. <laughs> David David I think is probably the worst character in the Bible he's a scoundrel David gets played off real good right there's that verse he's a man of God's own heart David though he, he, he breaks the rules from the beginning to the end he seems to never even get it if you read through the story I mean right before he's dying he's going against clear directions from God he can write really good poetry, but he can't stop himself from touching girls or from killing people his whole life. He's real famous for the Bathsheba incident. You probably know that story, right? Lady bathing. He goes, has an affair with her. They have a baby. He kills the father, right? Again, this is murder. An affair and murder. Many times God tells him not to do something. Go in a city. Don't do this. Do this. Don't do this. Do this. He goes and does what he wants. He'll just kill people usually. At the end of his life, God says, I can't let you build my temple. There's so much blood on your hands. And what's probably an understatement from God, that you can't, you can't really have a part of this because that's how, that's how bad your legacy is right now. Yet, at the same time, there's a verse saying, it's a man after God's own heart. And he did write intense poetry, and I do actually believe that God loved him, which is why it's good news that David existed. I've yet to kill a man. Not planning on it, but if I... <laughs> found myself in that situation. David's walked that path before me. He's faced that demon. And what was interesting about it is the demon didn't seem too big for God. All that murder. All the adultery. Saul, if you compare Saul's life with David, I always feel like Saul gets a really bad rap. Saul's the king before him. Uh, goes really wrong for Saul. God turns on Saul pretty quickly. Saul and David do similar things. Saul gets punished for it. David gets off for it. I mean, it's just really unfortunate to be Saul. Saul does some really crazy things at the end of his life, but it's most of the really weird stuff he does is after God sends an evil spirit to make him crazy. So I feel like he's off the hook for a lot of that. But what people say is, well, the difference between Saul and David is that David repented, right? In Psalm 51, wash my heart. They go, well, read the narrative. Read the story. Read it again. David doesn't repent. He gets busted. David ain't sorry for having an affair. David's sorry that he got caught having an affair. Are you tracking with me? I know what that feeling's like. Again, not the affair part, but as a kid, <laughs> multiple times, I'm not sorry that I did that. I'm really sorry that you found out that I did that. <laughs> I promise you that that will happen again, but I'm going to try really hard for you not to find out again. That's David's kind of repentance, right? I mean, real beautiful poetry. But he lies about it. He gets called out on it, lies about it, and gets busted again. I mean, that's really an unfortunate way to go down, I think. You know, your, your prophet comes to you and says, hey, did you do something really bad? You're like, no, I promise. God told me. Gosh, dang it. <laughs> <laughs> the one flaw in my plan was divine speech. No one else was aware of it. You have a woman in... in Jesus' genealogy are these demons, these, these broken women. I mean, the scriptures are full of these broken people that God uses. And, and we skip over it. Really broken people. 
I'm imagining that if I murdered, if I had an affair, had a kid, murdered the, the husband of the person I had the kid with, that you would not, that I might not have a job anymore. <laughs> you laughed a little too quickly at that. It's called <laughs> Grace. Or at least like a couple days off, like paid leave, okay? But this is, this is kind of regular stuff happening to heroes in the Bible. Again, I'm not saying that, that we should back off of discipline or, or rehabilitating people who fall, those kind of things. I'm just saying sometimes we might overlook how broken some of these people were that God moved through. <coughs> Jessica got to sub from my high schoolers this past week. Just lucky they almost revolted when I came back. They liked her way more than me. Um, she ran my kids through the, the woman in Matthew's genealogy. So Matthew does this genealogy in chapter 1. There's five women in there. You can ask my kids What's up with these five women? They'll all say, all together, real cute, like, they're scandalous. <laughs> they all have scandalous, infamous stories. One was a prostitute. One pretended to be a prostitute to sleep with her father-in-law. I heard her, ooh, amen. <laughs> One was a virgin who got pregnant. Really? <laughs> that one actually worked out. That was, she was clear on that one. So scandalous story. And Jesus' line, his blood. Can I tell you this? Jesus is not scared of your demons. It doesn't make him flinch. It doesn't disgust him. It doesn't surprise him. And if you think otherwise, you haven't read the Gospels enough. I mean, you just haven't kind of seen how Jesus acts around people. He seems to take everything pretty much in stride. He seems to actually, instead of being disgusted by those kind of people who have really dark past, and maybe are doing really seedy things in the moment, he seems to like hanging around them. He eats with them. He parties with them. In fact, he ignores the people who follow the rules to go do that. I didn't come for the righteous. I came for the sick. And what's interesting is he doesn't go with his nose turned up. He doesn't go with a sign to protest. He doesn't go to the man with the seven demons to tell him all about the seven demons he has and how bad he is for getting those demons. In fact, you might not ever see Jesus blame or accuse somebody in the New Testament. You might only ever see him respond with gentleness and love and the offer of healing. He never goes to protest or to rub your face in it. Somewhere along the line, Christians thought it might be a good idea to be known for what we hate and disgust and want to protest. And it was a horrible idea and we need to stop it. We need to cut it out. The world would be better off if we would shut up than if we would let everyone know what we hate. Skinner for 2016. No. <laughs> Absolutely not. Well, now I can't think of anything. <laughs> me off. I mean, Jesus went to, the, to some seedy people tax collectors, prostitutes. And he doesn't, he doesn't sit two seats away from them, afraid he's going to catch the sinnies. <laughs> right? I mean, I think this is sometimes how we think, right? It's in, we're going to be made impure. If those people around our kids, who knows what kind of hellions our kids are going to be? If we invite them over for dinner, have you smelled that person? Jesus, Jesus hangs out with them. He gets close to him. Jesus understands, actually, a lesson that I think we need to learn, which is that holiness is more powerful than sin is. Light is more powerful than darkness is. 
Light pushes back the darkness. Darkness doesn't overcome the light. If darkness overcomes the light, it wasn't light. Light touches darkness, the light overpowers. This is what you see in the Gospels. Jesus touches someone who's impure. He doesn't become impure. The impure person becomes what? Pure. The power runs through Jesus into that other person. He accepts them. No matter what the demon, no matter what, what's there. In fact, I think you'll find in the scriptures, um, almost any time you see any sort of blame or accusation, it's associated with Satan or the demonic. In fact, the word Satan, Hasatan in Hebrew, say that with me, Hasatan. Sounds sinister, right? It's a title for the accuser. Maybe <coughs> when we're blaming or accusing, we're actually working for the wrong team. Maybe when we're lifting up chins and saying, I don't condemn you. Let me show you life. Let me show you beauty. Let me show you community that will love you. Maybe that's when we're working for the right team. Maybe when people know us by all the evil people we'll hang out with and love and show kindness to, maybe that's when we know we're on to something. People will get mad. They got mad at Jesus for it. Paul says, I, I forget about the things behind me. And Paul, like so many other people in the scriptures, said so many things on his mind to, to remember. Now, here's what I want to do as we, we kind of wrap up. In this passage, I think, are two things that can help us address the demons that we have. I think what happens sometimes, in my experience, is we get stuck and we don't know how to get out. And we keep trying to do the same thing to kind of get out of these patterns that haunt us, and it doesn't work. You can't just do the same thing over and over again, expecting something different to happen. Now, here's the first thing Paul does that I think is so important. He actually acknowledges that he's not perfect to his congregation. I mean, this is a pretty big deal. He says, I haven't gotten there. I'm not perfect. I haven't even made it my own yet. He kind of makes himself open. He's vulnerable here. Here's what I think we need to do. We need to relearn the art of confession. And I'm not, we were not let's not play games. Not confession to God. Confession to another human being. Telling someone else, this is my demon. Look into my eyes. See the darkness. There's something about sin and demons that loves darkness. It's like a mold. I used to live in the ghetto in an apartment. There's lots of mold. And there's something about sin and demons that as soon as they're in the light, power is stripped from them. Call my bluff. Call it. The moment you utter those words. Now, it's not, it's not, I mean, you're not over it, right? It's not a miracle cure, but the moment someone else knows about it, the moment it's no longer a secret, so much power has been stripped of it. It shrivels up and dies in the light. I think AA, 12 steps, you're only as sick as, as your darkest secret. I mean, it applies here. The church, most of us, I believe, come from low church Protestant backgrounds. I do. I come from a Baptist background, um, which means we, got, we, we didn't do the confession thing, right? With the wooden box, and you go in, Father, I've done this this week. My son, I absolve you seven Hail Marys, right? We don't, most of us, I don't think, come from that background. Um, what we do need to realize is most of the church, for most of the history of the church, has done some sort of confession regularly. Um, ancient church service, they actually had a part of the service where you confess your sins, it's just a, the kind of thing you did every week. I think we would be unwise to think they wasted their time for thousands of years. Maybe they were on to something. 
by practicing this, this, this practice of confession. I think if you really want, want to get out of this demon depression, if you really want to get over this thing that haunts you, and you've never told anyone about it, there's a first step. And I, I, I promise you, I, I've done it. I've been there. Power strip like that. The second thing here, I think, is, is community. Confession and community. So many times we try to do this alone. We harp on this all the time at FC Cube. Look at what Paul says in verse 17. Brothers, join in imitating me. Brothers and sisters, imitate me. Watch what I do. Be my disciples. Be my mentors. Even though I'm not there, even though I'm not perfect, yet model the things that I do well and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. Do this together. Do this as a group. Do this as a community. Don't try this alone. It won't work alone. It was never meant to work alone. <clears throat> do it Do it together. One of the things about FC Cube, when we're working properly, when we're working right, is that we're a place where we belong to each other. We're a place where your problems are my problems. And my problems are your problems. And when you're dirty, I'm a little dirty. And when you're poor, I'm a little poor. And when I'm having wisdom teeth surgery and acting like a baby, you're coddling me like a baby. We belong to each other. We really do think that if I hurt one of you, I might have to expect Jesus to ask why I hurt him one day. That we're not just the mutual Facebook friends of Jesus. We all happen to know the same guy. It's just convenient for us to get together. But we're in, we're in this together. At least we should be, right? Jesus isn't afraid of demons. Again, I think at our best, the church shouldn't be afraid of demons. If there's any place in the world where people should be able to go in and say, this is what's up, this is what's happening in my life, this is what's happened to me in my life, and not have people flinch or throw their hands up in disgust or kick them out in condemnation, it has to be the Church of Christ. Not a denomination, the body of Christ. People who follow the one who was crucified for them. People who found themselves unclean, yet still invited to the table. People who found themselves enemies of God, yet still given a life offered for them. And if we can't do it, man, there's no hope for the world. There's just no hope. One of the things about being a pastor that that I didn't anticipate is people trust you implicitly. Right? I mean, people, whether you deserve it all the time or not, I mean, whether you kind of put the capital in that relationship, they just kind of, sometimes just vomit, right? This is my life story. And it's like, whoa, you have a lot of life story. (laughs) And what you realize, actually, after a while, is, is everybody has a lot of life story. Literally, every single person has things that if you were to talk to them about in the next 30 minutes, they would cry. No matter how tough they look, how big their muscles are, Adam. <laughs> Everyone has, has these things in our lives. We're all in this together. We, we confess and we, we grow together. The, the last thing I want to just point out here is there is action here. There is freedom here. Sometimes we get caught up and we make the gospel all about forgiveness and we forget the fact it's also about transformation. There's power in this new kingdom. There's power in this new covenant. There's power in the spirit. We're not trapped anymore to cry out with the prophet Imagine Dragon and say, this is my kingdom come. We are free to step into a new realm and say, this is God's kingdom come. This is what it feels like and looks like to live in God's kingdom. Is it easy? No. Will you get there fast? No. But you can press on. You can confess when you fall, and you can work at it with your, your brothers and sisters in Christ. You can be transformed. You can be freed. 
At the very end, he, he offers this note of hope. I can't escape this now unless you show me how. That's what we have in the gospel. We have both the example and the power, both the direction and the means. Forgiven and loved, given the power of the Spirit to walk in a new life. I want to end with a quote from a book. It's a memoir by a guy named uh, Brennan Manning, a real famous Christian author, speaker, one of the more famous, I think, in, in the last generation. Uh, and he was real well known for this kind of radical grace that he preached. One of his, his catchphrases was, God loves you as you are, not as you should be. God doesn't love some future version of you where you finally stop doing this or that. He loves you, even as dirty and messy as you are. Yeah, we get it. But he loves you now. Well, he writes this memoir. I'm not too familiar with him when I read this, but I love memoirs. He writes this memoir, and it's really shocking. All this time, he's been this really famous author and speaker. He was a raging alcoholic. To the point where, while he's writing this book, he can't finish it because his body breaks down. He had drunk that much, that much over his, his lifetime. He tells stories in the book where he preaches to thousands, hundreds of thousands of people. I mean, he was popular. He's as big time as you get. And he'd retire his hotel room and go into a seven-day drunken binge. We'd black out for a couple of days. His family wouldn't be able to contact him. The next time anyone would see him would be a week later on the other side of the country for the next speaking event. He'd do it over and over and over again. Broken relationships in and out of the hospital, ending up broken body. And yet, through all of this, even afterwards, he writes this memoir, and he stands by what he said. And he says, I know it offends, but even in my life, as broken as it is, I feel like God's grace is enough for me. This is how the book, All is Grace. You can't, you can't outsend God's love for you. He opens the book up, I'll, I'll read it. He says, this book is written by, I think you might resonate with his words, this book is, is written by the one who thought he'd be farther along by now, but he's not. It's by the inmate who promised the parole officer that he'd be good, but he wasn't. It's by the dim-eyed who showed the path to others, but kept losing his own way. It's by the wet-brained who believed if a little wine is good for the stomach, then a lot is great. It's by the liar, the tramp, and the thief, otherwise known as the priest and the speaker and the author. It's by the disciple whose cheese slid off his cracker so many times he said, to hell with cheese and crackers. I'll be honest, I don't understand that part of it. <laughs> if you can explain that to me, I'd love that. <laughs> I got to say hell though, so that's cool. <laughs> it's by the young at heart but old of bone who's led these days in a way that he'd rather not go. He closes the book after these really scandalous stories. He says this, my life is a witness to vulgar grace, a grace that amazes as it offends. And I caught myself doing this reading the book. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? Who in the world are you? And then after experiencing all of this, why would you write a book about it? Take it to the grave, bro. (laughs) Right? Believe that God still loves you, but it's going to be hard for me to. (laughs) I'm not as gracious as God is. He says it's a vulgar grace. It amazes and offends, which actually is what you see in the Gospels. People get really upset at how gracious Jesus is to people who don't deserve it, who think they deserve it. So upset they kill him. I mean, they murdered somebody. That's how mad people got. That's how mad Jesus made them. 
He says, it's a grace that pays the eager beaver who works all day long the same wages as the grinning drunk who shows up at 10 till 5. You might remember that from a parable Jesus told. And he told it, and it made people want to kill them, kill him. He said, you could, you could follow God faithfully your whole life. And at 5 o'clock until the quitting time, 5 minutes till quitting time, some drunk walks in and says, can I work? I'll give him the same amount of wage. I'll give him life. So that's not fair. He said, none of it's fair. Let me handle it. Remember a thief on a cross? Yeah, last minute. A grace, he says, that hikes up the robe and runs breakneck toward the prodigal, reeking of sin, and wraps him up and decides to throw a party. No ifs, ands, or buts. A grace that raises bloodshot eyes to a dying thief's request, says, please remember me, and assures him, you bet. A grace that is the pleasure of the Father, fleshed out in the carpenter Messiah, Jesus the Christ, who left his Father's side, not for heaven's sake, but for your sakes, for our sakes. This vulgar grace is indiscriminate compassion. It works without asking anything of us. It's not cheap, but it is free. It's not cheap. It costs a life. It costs the creator of the world life. But it does come to you freely. You don't earn it. You don't, you don't defeat the demons yourself. You don't have to clean them up yourself. What you do is you, you turn to Jesus. These stories in the Gospels where the, the people with the demons, they see Jesus and they just turn to him. And things start to get better. If there's anything you can do that, that one step, just turn to him. Let's go. Go that direction. Do something and go that direction. I think the Gospel, the Scriptures answer to the questions, the longings put out by this song. Lots of us have demons. I've got some of my own. But I happen to know somebody and take care of it. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for the life that you have offered to us. We pray that we would be in awe of your love for us. We pray that we would not be enslaved by our past or by pain or by shame or by fear or by doubt, by abuse or by sin, Father, that we would be able to put those things behind us and press forward to you, that we would move towards you, that we would recognize not that we just need to forget what's happened in the past and, and don't worry about it, but, but that we need to recognize what you have done for us. You have made us your own. You grasp us in the cross and in your resurrection. You have united our fates with your fate. You've loved us. Because you've made us your own, we press on to make you our own. We pray that you'd give us the strength and the courage to do that this morning and for the rest of our lives. We love you in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. All of God's people said, Amen.